Hello and welcome to Sporting Directors Corner here on Get Football Plus, where we aim to look at football in the context of sporting directors, delve that little bit deeper into this multifaceted role and its impact within football across the globe. My name is Shailash, I'm the CEO at Get Football Group and I'll be your host today. And as always, I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, David. David, how are you this morning? I'm well, I'm well, Shailash. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a, it's been a good week. Um, and yeah, it's an interesting transfer window. It's been quite quiet, actually, this month. We're actually just recording at the end of July. So it's been quite quiet, I think, relatively speaking, but hope, probably going to be some fireworks, I think, in August. So let's see. But David, let's get started. So today... We're going to kind of just expand a little bit on our last episode um, where we were talking about Monchi and Emery at Aston Villa. And if you've not heard that, then then please take a look at it and have a listen. Um, I think it'll be quite interesting for you. But what we want to expand on today is, is we talked about talent projection and we mentioned a few names, a few sporting directors. And what we wanted to do today is kind of go a little bit deeper into talent projection, you know, what that means you know, sport in, in, in the world of a sporting director. Um, so let's get cracking with the first question, David. I mean, what do you actually mean by talent projection? Yeah, so on the surface, it sounds, you know, fairly obvious. Okay, how do we get, let's just say, the, the best talent at a given position into our first team squad? Um, however, in my opinion, if you think like that, you're always going to be behind because you're you're taking – you're making the assumption that the talent that you have right now is good enough, and you're you're making the assumption that you'll be able to keep that talent, right? Those are two very uh, tricky, tricky realities. You want to make sure any anytime you are in a leadership position and you have to have um, a person or people perform, you your number one port of call as that leader is to source talent. Um, sometimes sourcing that talent is more along the lines of uh, maintaining a, a level of performance. Um, if we talk specifically about uh, in football, that's why you, you want to have a, a manager, first team manager, who is skilled socially uh, and uh, relationally, say like Jurgen Klopp. Um, you you want to have somebody who can keep the guys, keep your personnel in the right mindset. You also, in, in terms of maintaining talent, you want to have somebody who mentally uh, stimulates and instigates challenges for um, uh, these players. Because at the end of the day, you know, I mean, how many times? One of my favorite, one of my favorite clips is uh, Maicon, who is a Brazilian fullback for Mourinho at Inter back in the day, when he would steal the ball from basically anybody. Uh, he, he, you know, go on a, a duel and take the ball from anybody. And the caption would basically read, you know, like a father playing in the garden with his son. Right. Um, you, you, you need, you need that level of talent to show up. Right. And just to use uh, Serie A in Italy as an example, showing up against uh, Cremonense is completely different than showing up against Juventus. It's completely different. Um, same result, you know, as far as what needs to happen or what you plan to happen, but the mental, um, the mental fatigue of going up and down as far as concentration levels, you need a skilled master, preferably somebody who knows exactly what it means to be a player at that level. Okay. Um, so when you have somebody like, uh, Pep Guardiola as a first team manager, that helps or Jose Mourinho, that helps Carlo Ancelotti, that helps. However, um, you know, probably the, the reality of, of football and maybe um, let's just say any job, any any um, uh, uh, career to a sense. It's not like it was in generations past where you're a one company or a one club man. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess there's some discourse out there, but anywhere between three, you know, two to five seasons in one club is all you can take, you know, from what you hear from the outside. So how do you keep. How do you replace talent, right? Like that. Like at the end of the day, uh, it's really about that. How do you replace talent, capable talent? Um, doesn't matter what team sport you look at, but when we focus at, focus on the top five uh, European uh, clubs, I'm sorry, European leagues, the clubs that are at the top do do a handful of things really well. 
they have the the best first team managers, relatively speaking, they have the best managers, but then they also have a setup led by um, either the you know uh, Real Madrid sense uh, the owner uh, Florentino Perez or a sporting director type role or vice president role or uh, chairman role who finds a way to replace talent. So talent projection, in my opinion, I know it's a long-winded answer, but talent projection, in my opinion, is how do we get a better talent into our setup sooner for the part of the journey that we're at right now? That's To me, that is the the number one question. So, I mean, in, in footballing worlds, then, are you... Obviously, if you're recruiting a player, for example, and you know you want them to do a specific job right now, then I guess your projection is a more near-term thing. Whereas if you're looking at a, a younger player or an academy prospect or something, that do you think sporting directors are looking further ahead? You know, to understand, well, a if we can develop this player, that'd be great for us as a team. But also in terms of asset value, increasing that, I guess those are factors that you're considering, right, when you're thinking about talent projection. All the above, all the above. I mean, it, it depends. Uh, I know it's kind of abstract to say this, but it depends on where you are as a club in your journey. So um, to use uh, a couple different uh, clubs as illustrations, um, what what Barcelona needs right now uh, to, um, you know, as reigning champions of La Liga is very different than what uh, Sevilla needs with Monchi leaving and with, you know, same manager at the end of the season, but they, they have different needs. Those diff- those needs are not necessarily tied to position only or even squad development. Um, one of them has a more immediate um, performance output um, needed from, let's just say, to pick a category, goal uh, contribution. Uh, with, um, say, Sevilla uh, to a degree. Uh, and then Barcelona needs to, I mean, you're fighting, you're fighting what? Uh, La Liga, Copa del Rey. Um, you know, you, you're, let, let's just say you, you better get further than you got last season in Champions League, right? So there's different demands on the roster. There's different demands on the players in the squad. And a skilled sporting director and a recruitment setup knows how to you're all there's always trade-offs right i know that's cliche but you 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 have to balance or maybe the the better word is blend how do we get similar performance but then also bridge uh you know bridge the gap because there's also contractual limitations to what you can do you know i I mean if you have i don't know how many more years uh, robert Lewandowski has on his contract but I mean, he, he's not 25 years old anymore, right? You know, how do we begin to bridge that gap as far as expectation? And sometimes uh, those top, top clubs, it really is about competition. Can can Ansu Fati, can he stay healthy? You know, what can Usman Dembele do? Can he play another position? Can he play more in centrally, right? These are questions where, um, surprise, surprise, it always goes back to alignment. If you are aligned as a club, and it starts with your identity, if you know how you want to play, uh, if you know how you want to represent your supporters, it makes it that much more easier to continue to get profiles at least into the pipeline to where as you lose players are, you know, whether it's via retirement or they get uh, transferred out or just, you know, I mean, Quite frankly, sometimes you just want to do something else as a player, as a person. Sometimes you leave. How do you replace that player? Do you just go directly through your academy? Do you say, hey, um, a la Bayern Munich, who's the best left back in our league? Okay, let's take him. You know, do you, do you do it that way? Or do you do something completely different? And you, I mean, it's challenging. I, I certainly love it. But do you find a way to say, hey, nobody's recruiting this country, this market? And this is the best left back there. And he's 18 years old. Let's let's do it. Let's take a chance on him. Let's take a chance on our setup, whether it's just recruitment and or first team management that we can help develop and get this young profile into our setup and have him produce. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about these kind of uh, 
unknown talents or there seems to be very, very little secrets in football these days or or maybe that's just a, a, a phrase that people use to uh, because they're working on something themselves. But let's look at... Um, let, let's talk about Brentford. Brentford, when we talk about talent projection... Um, you know, we earmarked Brentford, and we when we we looked at Phil Giles, who's the director of football there. They're a club who, you know, they have been lauded in the Premier League. You know, they've been there for a couple of seasons now. You know, and they've done remarkably well. But their setup underneath is is really quite interesting and quite fascinating um, as to what they have gone through in the last, I guess, five ten years. Um, and I just wanted to talk to you about them and and Phil Giles. What what are you seeing there when you profiled Phil Giles? And, and the way he operates, you know, from a talent projection standpoint, what are you seeing with him? Yeah, he, uh, I mean, he doesn't fly under the radar as much anymore because Rasmus Ankerson departed for, um, I forget the name of their group, uh, but they have Gostepe and Southampton and, and um, I forget the other club as well. They, they're, they're in the multi-club uh, ascension, you if you will. Uh, Phil Giles is 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 a guy that uh, the more you, the more I read about him, the more uh, fascinated I am because he does have a he has a um, how do I call this uh, he has a persona that is just so so seemingly rational that it doesn't belong um, in sports. And uh, it goes back to his, uh, I believe it's uh, yeah, his mathematics degree. So that's right. Yeah. Uh, what what you see with um, Phil Giles um, sitting above uh, on top of the the setup as director of sport, and then Lee Dykes as more of a technical director. Brighton Brighton has been the 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 topic du jour as far as talking about recruitment and succession planning. At least I I like to talk about the succession planning of their club. Um, and, and everybody's, you know, rightfully lauding them. Brentford came in a, a little bit later, but the sneaky thing about Brentford that is not talked about because it's quite frankly not appealing is that they've retained a lot of their their talent, right? How how is that so different? Is it just more of a decision, or is it you know their their setup? Um, as far as um, when I say they're set, they're set up, I just mean like contractually. Is that like how how are they able to hold on to these level of talents? You know, uh, on, on one hand, I know it's it's layered, but if you think about how they got Ivan Tony, uh, you know, like the, it's seemingly they were the only serious ones, you know, at the table, right? And to to come to this point, I know that uh, the, the spring this year has not been so great for Ivan Tony the profile and what have you. Um, but you're talking about a a world class level striker that they saw, they scouted, and they signed, and they've kept him. And even if we just go, you know, to the first team chair, they've been able to keep Thomas Frank as well too, right? So when you contrast them to say what Brighton's I don't want to call it their MO, um, but Brighton has a, a, a more open style setup as far as, hey, sign this contract. If, if another co- uh, club comes for you, another opportunity comes for you, these are the terms where you can leave uh, in, a, in a rival situation. We don't know anything about that with Brentford, really, right? But at the same time, they have a manager who is, I mean, I don't know how you, I've done it. Uh, I, I've put managers in tears. Um, Thomas Frank is one where I, I I don't know if he'll get the credit that he deserves yet, right? Like just just what he's been able to do to get them a to the Premier League, but then b keep them. Um, it, it's interesting, right? So talent projection for what uh, Brentford's been able to do in the last let's just call it since. Um, the, I believe it was that COVID year when they didn't go up, and then the the, the season right after that is when they came up. The, their ability to bring in talent, to have that talent perform, and then to keep that talent, that's top six level like ability, in my opinion. I'm not saying that their players are top six level, even though they're they're fairly close, but when you can get the, the Brian and Buomo's of the world, the Ivan Tonys, uh, Christopher Agger, 
Like when you're able to get those players and then have them perform and then not lose them, it allows you, um, I don't know if we talk about this on or off air, when they initially uh, shut down their academy however many seasons ago, it was all the talk. It was all the headlines. Well, guess what? They're reopening their academy. You can't really do that unless you're good at keeping talent a little bit longer, you know, to to bridge that gap. So talent projection is, to me, is it's about knowing where you are and getting as much as you can um, from that talent in that window of time. If we're being super cold-blooded about it, uh, when you contrast them against a club like, say, Brighton, Brighton's been able to get on-pitch performance and balance sheet uh, performance, you know, return on uh, talents. And I'm not saying that Brentford has not, but seemingly they've they've, uh, prioritized the on-pitch performance. I mean, which which makes sense, right? I mean, at the end of the day, they are a football club, so it, it definitely makes sense. But the setup they have behind is is actually they have invested in their infrastructure. They, I think, it's a Premier League rule now that you have to have an academy, which is, I think, why they've had to reopen. But I think they're doing it in, I guess, a smarter way potentially. Um, I, you know, it remains to be seen over time. But I'm just wondering from um, like Phil Giles, his background. You know, mathematician, not necessarily as you always hear a football man, right? It's like football seems very close circle sometimes, and I think slightly off topic here, but you know, his his hired, I think, a performance director in the past. Again, outside of football, he seems to be a very diverse thinker. You know, embraces, I guess, cognitive diversity. Do you think sporting directors are doing this more generally we're totally off topic with the with the talent projection but it was just something that came to mind just based on what you're seeing within football these days because i love the fact that people outside of football are given opportunities within football right they're opening up those doors which they always should yes i mean it's a balance and um so it's actually uh you're gonna have to make sure you rein me in because this this is a tangent laden (laughs) If there is ever one. Um, okay. Uh, but I agree with you. I, I think that I like the term cognitive diversity. Uh, you know, quite frankly, there's there's too much, uh, uh, well, let me just say it, intellectual incest in sports. There's not enough. There's not enough open thoughts outside the box thinking, hey, what what works in F1? Can that work here? You know? Um, you know, a, a colleague was telling me that, and I might even butcher this. A colleague was telling me that um, for NASCAR, which is the American version of uh, uh, F1, they went from I think what five or three lug nuts to one on a on a car tire. I'm not a mechanic. I'm not that guy. But but <laughs> how do you come about like innovation like that? Trial and error. Somebody says to the somebody says to the head, um, you know, whether it's Toto Wolf or the guys at Red Bull or whatever, hey, what if we go faster? What if we go with less uh, equipment in one area and compensate with speed in, in another area, right? And that cognitive diversity allows for seemingly basic um, innovation or basic ideas to blossom to the level of having a uh competitive advantage. Now, I'm also, you know, firmly entrenched in the other side of it too. I'm of the opinion that um, the best clubs, the best clubs have uh, leadership who have been in the game, whether as players, as managers. Um, Obviously, once you get past that level, you know, uh, it it could be more of a a business or bureaucratic um, experience. But especially those who have played at a high level, it's why Bayern can't not be good, in my opinion. You know, I'm just being honest. They can't not be good because they have leadership who knows what it means locally to be the best in the country. And they don't want to lose that in their lifetime, right? So there's a blend there. Um, yet at the end of the day, you have to you have to have the currency of results. And that's what Brentford has. That's what uh, Matthew Benham has, has um, let's just call it, uh, incentivized. 
the the number one thing, and, and we we don't talk about this enough unless it's um, unless it's a disaster and it's more of a uh, you know uh, Schadenfreude about it. But the number one goal for the remaining fourteen clubs <laughs> in the Premier League <laughs> is to stay in the league. You have you if you don't stay in the league. You want to talk about shame, you know, forget about, you know, all, all the other stuff. It, it it makes it to where you you have to constantly be thinking about how we're thinking, right? What are we thinking about? Are we thinking about the right things? And you can't always have that, uh, I'm going to call it peripheral um, leadership vision if everybody is, you know, on a one track mind to Boxing Day, right? You know what I'm saying? Like those who have not lived in the sport, who have a whether it's a mathematics or a business or a science um, foundation are able to step out and say, wait a minute, this reminds me of, you know, uh, the migration of seagulls to, uh, I'm making that up. Right. But I'm just saying it, it, you, you, you need diversity in thought and whether it's through data or it's through somebody who does not have a traditional path into the game, the sooner you can leverage it, tangibly as a club, as a sporting director, the sooner you might have a competitive advantage that might take, I mean, things are faster now, but it might take a season or two before your direct rivals catch up. And that's what, you know, I, I mean, Brentford uh, with with uh, Giles and Ankerson and Benham, you know, they didn't just show up last year, right? This, this has been mm. the better part of a decade where they've been doing the same things. So that foundation of pushing the envelope in different areas and and um, attacking the inefficiencies in the game, if you can lean in on it and have somebody who's constantly pushing the envelope further, 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 you, you give yourself an opportunity to, you know, almost indirectly uh, produce sustainability, like, you know, staying in the Premier League, but then also a competitive advantage where, contractually, retention-wise, you're able to keep your best manager. You're able to keep your best talent. And then you give yourself, whether it's mandated from above or not, you give yourself the opportunity to develop talent while the talent that you have currently, your let's call it your prize talent, is performing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's another episode, David. I'm, I'm really keen to, to delve into that diverse thinking, leveraging other sports, all those all those topics that we mentioned, and we will we will get that episode to you guys out there. Um, Brentford, fascinating. I mean, you know, maybe they've gone a little bit under the radar, but they're not no longer are because maybe Brighton, I guess you could call them, in some the bigger brother has has taken the the headlines maybe. But uh, we will see in this coming season how how Brentford perform and and how their structure holds, yeah, with you know in relation to the what happens on the pitch, but just. Stay with the the talent projection. The name that you mentioned on the last episode, Giuseppe Morata, um, you know, who's the chairman at Inter. You know, I think he doubles as their head of recruitment as well. I mean, his history is incredible, right? I mean, he's been in the game for so many years, accomplished so many things. You look at some of the names from a talent angle um, that he has either identified or or sold on or raised asset values. I mean, you're talking names like. You know, Andrea Pirlo, you're talking Paul Pogba, who who I think he took from Man United for free and then sold sold back to them for a, over 100 million euros. I mean, that's not a bad return. But w- what do you see with the, with the with a guy like that, David? You know, in in the world of a sporting director, what is he doing or has done um, from a talent projection standpoint? Yes. Yeah, so um, uh, Beppe Marotta is one. Of he's one of the uh, the sporting directors that I, I truly appreciate, um, and the only thing that has stopped me from writing about him more is just the fact that the majority he doesn't do a lot of well he doesn't do any interviews, um, and on top of that everything is in Italian so that that makes it to where it, it's really uh, it's a labor of love to to go through the the decades um, uh, of his work now. I mean, you're asking me the question and what um, I hadn't gotten to before and mentally, but I'm realizing I'm realizing it now. Uh, the seat, I think, I think uh, that, you know, there's two secrets, right? There, there's two, two, uh, two, two aspects to this. 
yes, he's been able to to attract and, and, and secure talent. But the thing that he's been able to do, which goes part and parcel, what I say pretty much every 24 minutes on this podcast, <laughs> is that he's been able to align the talent with the playing style and the personality of the first team manager, right? Um, this is unfair, but it's just an illustration. We all know um, Paul Pogba's, uh, I don't want to call it ceiling, but we know what he's capable of, right? In my opinion, humbly, he was at his best with a manager, the type of uh, Antonio Conte, who, A, played his position fairly well, you know, I mean, one might even argue, say better, you know, to a degree, you know, of a certain age, played his position fairly well, but then also has a personality to say, look, I don't care how good you are. This is what we do in my setup. This is what you are going to do in my setup. And this is why I'm asking you to do it. Um, I've made the comment before. uh, Antonio Conte's nickname is Martello, uh, which quite simply in Italian means hammer. Uh, So he he doesn't tolerate your... um, doesn't tolerate uh, laziness or our lack of commitment or conviction, right? So contrast what uh, Pogba did at Juventus, um, whew, I mean, at a high level for over four or five seasons, and then contrast that to when he was sold to Manchester United and his relationship. Forget about the on-field performance, but his relationship with Jose Mourinho. I've said plenty of times before, uh, Jose Mourinho to me is the most fascinating man in football. Uh, he, like, I don't know if I hate him or love him. That's how, that's how polarizing he is. Because when you see what he does, I mean, just even the Europa League final, what he did to the, the referee, like that is Bush League stuff, right? Yeah. But when you have the likes of John Terry, Didier Drogba, Wesley Snyder, Samuel Eto'o, Walter Matarazzi, all these guys saying that they would die for this man, why? Why would they do that? Because he knows how to have them perform on their terms. Yet he wasn't able to do that with Paul Pogba, right? So stepping back to the actual question, so I don't go too far into my tangent. Um, Marotta is very good, very good at understanding um, what, what personality of the manager would go best with which profiles that they're targeting. And... You know, the, the silent thing that or not silent, the, the invisible thing in that is that too often. Um, and I, I want to be fair, like tactics and strategy, all, all those things are, are, are cool, as we say here in the States. So that, that's cool. Right. Like, you know, three, five, two, you know, um, you know, relation, relationism, all, all these things that are topics du jour in football. Those 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 are great. Right. I, I mean, they're intellectually stimulating. When it comes to recruitment, though, as a sporting director, I would I'm contrarian. Um, and I know I <laughs> I'm of the opinion it doesn't really matter how much, you know, tactically as a sporting director and recruitment. It's important, you know, as a baseline, you need to be competent. But what matters more is how do I match up? Uh, how do I match up this ego, this athletic, younger ego with this older usually um, past athletic ego who both have, uh, you know, clout in the game. How do I match those up? That's not a question of three, five, two or wing back versus full back or false not. That's a question of, of relationships, right? And being able to master relationships is something that will never get enough ink when we talk about football or sport. We too often want, when we talk about the teams, the clubs, the, uh, the as they say here in the States, the franchises that do well, we always want to, f- you know, focus on LeBron James. We want to focus on uh, Vinicius. We want to focus on uh, Virgil van Dijk. We want to focus on Robert uh, Lewandowski. And to a degree, that's that's true. But what we don't see are the training room moments where these guys are dragging from whatever they did last night or the fact that, you know, it's March and the season started in August, right? Who, who, who brings them up? Who, who challenges them? Who inspires them? 
Who says you're just as good as you were when you won the Ballon d'Or, even though you haven't won it in three years? You know what I'm saying? Like, those are the things that relation we will never be able to tweet about because those things are not for public consumption, right? So, uh, you know, uh, Marotta has been very, very good. I mean, just look at the diplomacy. And I'm going to use that word sp- specific. Look at the, 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 uh, the diplomacy he has leveraged with the whole Romelu Lukaku. We love Brig Rom. We love him. But that's between Chelsea. <laughs> him and Chelsea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like he's essentially <laughs> saying, hey, you have a home here. But financially speaking, you have to go to who wrote the contract. Like you, like, you know, like you need to do your business with them first before you come talk to us because we can't we can't meet the terms of what they're asking. And that is, again, it's it's very intangible. Um, yet there is a, there's an American football coach. I'm going to butcher the quote because um, I haven't looked at it in a while. But Pete Carroll uh, coaches the Seattle Seahawks. They won the Super Bowl uh, probably 2016, 2016, or 2017. And he, made, he said a quote. Um, I was watching it on YouTube, and I rewound, rewinded, rewound, uh, listened to it back four or five times because I was like, that is the quote. And he said that the, the reporter basically asked him, it was like, you know, Pete, um, how would you characterize uh, uh, mental toughness, mental fortitude? And he said, ment- he said something along the line, and I'll find that and retweet it, but he said something along the lines of the mental capacity is three times the physical capacity. If we can get our players to understand that mentally is where we need to win, the physical is an afterthought. This is American football, right? I mean, mm. the most physical, well, other than rugby, uh, is the most physical of, of physical sports, right? And he's saying that it starts in the mind or it begins and ends in the mind pretty much. So um, being able to, to master relationships is the only way you will unlock athletes' minds. Like that's the only way. You can't unlock it with money. You can't unlock it with more followers on social media. You can't unlock it with giving them the captain's armband. That does like that's not enough. You you have to have a a sporting director or a recruitment setup that knows how to tap into that uh, specific profile's psyche so that it can align it can align with the first team manager and his his personality and his playing style. I think um, I think Arsene Wenger said something similar actually as well. I think from a physical standpoint, there's only so much more you're going to be able to develop a body physically. Um, but from a neurological standpoint, it's pretty much untapped as to how far you can go. So that's an area where, you know, there definitely needs to be more focus applied, I think. And, and it's not just in terms of a tactical brain or anything, but also from a mental toughness or or those areas. But Dave, I just, want, I just wanted to pick up on, on one comment that you made before on um, when, when a sporting director brings in a the player, they want to make sure that it aligns with the current manager but often the manager's not there for very long. Am I, am I fair to say that you're also looking at making sure that whatever I do with this player, bringing them in, that they're going to get better or they're not going to get worse so my asset value does not get diminished, I guess. Is that is that a fair statement? Um. So I, I know where you're going with the, uh, the question. And, and for me, this is me talking. I don't like it. I don't. I don't like that train <laughs> of thought simply because cool. it, it puts. Um, and I say I don't like it, but I. I think it's it's the uh, it's the predom- It is the predominant thought or perspective. Uh, I don't like it simply because you're, you're putting you're putting the potential of whether it's asset value, player value, or player performance over the identity. And the, the 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 sustainability of the club of of the playing style, right? And that to me is blasphemy, <laughs> absolute blasphemy. <laughs> the, the clubs that we love to hate, or the clubs that we don't talk about enough, have two things that I think um, make them sustain uh, outwardly, right? That we can see. Number one is that they have a very, very public and clear identity. When you see Atletico Madrid and you see Diego Simeone, you know what you're getting. You know exactly what you're getting. 
you might not like it. In fact, let's be honest, you should not like it. You should not want any part of it. And they know that, and they know that you know that. Yet, that's who they're going to be. That's who they will pretty much always be, right? So they have a very clear identity. The second part is, is that they have a, I don't know what word to use that is um, the most illustrative, uh, but they I'm just going to call it, they have a, a five-star general. They have somebody who lets you know who they are and who they will always be. So continuing that uh, Atletico Madrid uh, illustration, Diego Simeone, like he's not, I don't think he's as polarizing as Jose Mourinho, but he also is not going to waver in how they do things and, and why they do things because that identity is more important than player asset value on transfer market. Like anybody who has seen Joao Felix play when he was at Benfica, is is silently dying. <laughs> silently dying that he has not been set free. On the pitch, at least, right? However, you know, I say this, you know, as an American, dude, it's Atletico Madrid. What did you think? What did you think was going to happen? You you are not going to be that flossy on the pitch with Diego Simeone. That being said, they still got them. They still got that talent. Now what? We'll see, right? You go to the other side of the uh, of the coin, whereas you say in, in La Liga, you look at Athletic Bilbao, Basque, Basque only, uh, or, or, or let's just call it like Basque concentrated, uh, whether the region or uh, uh, through the youth setup, and they play attacking football. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to shoot for financial anything. Like that's that's not what. Like our identity is red and white stripes, and we are our local um, regions club. And I say every time I say this, it still drives me crazy. How like maddeningly, how maddeningly like awesome this is. When is the last time you heard or saw a headline stating that any? player from Athletic Bilbao wanted out. I have not seen it. I have not, like, since I've followed European football, so let's just say safely since August of 2010, after the the World Cup in South Africa, I have, the only person, and I don't even think it was more, I I mean, I need to look at it now, but Javi Martinez was the only one uh, when he went to Bayern, when Bayern wanted him, he was the only one that there was even a hint of him not wanting to be an athletic Bilbao. That's 13 years, right? So at the end of the day, to answer your question straight up, uh, as is my style uh, after a while, um, I, yeah, yeah, you want, you want the players to perform and you want to validate your setup. You want to validate your recruitment chops, right? But it doesn't go ahead of the, the, the crest, you you have to be about what the club is about. You have to be compatible. You don't need to be best friends or a son, you know, to the first team manager, but you need to be compatible with the first team manager. Because if you're not, you're now affecting 24 other players and the backroom staff and the manager. So one person, and, and that's just what we see, right? One person should not, uh, how do I say this? One person should not be more important than the 40 who are on a day-to-day operation trying to push the first team further, right? It has to be the other way around. Like it, it, so I, go ahead. Yeah, so I, so I agree with that. I, th- I think the, the point I was trying to, like the, the, the Chao Felix and the Simeone Atletico Madrid triangle, I guess, is quite an interesting one because obviously when Chao Felix was brought in, the, the thought process must have been that they're going to link well together, right? <laughs> right. There must be something there that's going to say, well, you're going to play well under Simeone because things must be aligning. Otherwise, why would you bring him in, right? And I guess my point is, is if you're bringing him for such a huge sum of money as a club, as a business, don't forget the crest. Obviously, the crest is the, the most important thing because no one's bigger than the club. But what you don't want to do is show your misalignment I guess, by seeing actually what then happened with that, those two, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I 
I feel like that's probably going to be one. Uh, I don't know if that's a book. I don't know if it's that that you know <laughs> that detailed, but that that's like a uh, that's like a David Ornstein or the Athletic you know five part series right there. Because I mean, you know, to a certain degree, the same thing could be said about Thomas Lamar. You know, when he left AS yeah. Monaco, right? Um, it, not not to go too far back in the weeds, but you know, you, you sell Griezmann to Barcelona. You have a lot of money. What do you do with it? Uh, well, <laughs> they chose one way to you know to exhaust those funds. And again, um, I, I never want to be critical with limited details. Uh, I, I try to be, you know, directionally critical. You know, like hey, if you're if you're trying to um, have a team atmosphere, why would you get you know player X or or something of that nature? That being said, um, one harsh reality is that, um, and I don't, I don't talk about it a lot because I just don't have proof. I mean, I know of it, but I can't always say it. Um, Just because you have a a very clear identity and you have very strong personalities in public view, doesn't mean that decisions, big ones even, aren't handled or managed by those above them even above the sporting director, right? So in so many words, I'm saying, you know, sometimes these transfers are, 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 are done and dusted well before those who actually have to be boots on the ground even have a say, right? And you can sense yeah. that. You can a thousand percent sense, sense that in how the communication comes from, say, Diego Simeone, um, or how it comes from um, is... Uh, Mendez is a Joao Felix's agent, right? Or my miss? Is this? Yeah, yeah. No. He so, is. so if if you take all three, if you take uh, Diego's comments on the on the whole thing since he's been there, and Jorge Mendez's comments and Joao Felix's comments, I mean, you want to talk about frustratingly vague? You know, it's because they they all know they all know something that we don't know yet. We we can't know yet. And it's best if they all don't burn bridges. That's part of it. Sometimes these transfers are bigger than transfer market value or, or appreciation or, you know, even even my beloved fit and alignment. Sometimes it's not about that. Yeah, these big transfers are, are highly complex with so many parties involved. And I think it can be difficult to judge it based on those. I think I think more often than not, those bigger transfers are maybe some of the ones that fail the most, I think, because there's so much spotlight on it were some of the, I guess, lesser ones, which coming back to the top of the show where, you know, you look at Brentford, maybe, you know, they that they can work better, I think is the way. Um, David, just as a, as a final, a final comment, I think on this one in terms of talent projection, I mean, do you, do you have any final words on other directors out there that, you know, people should maybe keep an eye on the way they operate, and or or other leagues or clubs where the talent side of it is uh, is quite interesting. Yeah. So, um, again, uh, there's about to be a tangent, so uh, <laughs> forgive me in advance. But I, no, I, I think I think this episode might have to be called tangents, actually, because yeah. we've gone off we've gone off on a few today. Yeah. So uh, tangent production. Uh, now. Um, you know, when we talk about ten, uh, talent, talent, not tangent, talent production, the unspoken reality is that um, there's there's a level of risk that every director um, has to be able to sit with. How how much risk can I take and still get a viable result? Right. So w- with that in mind, you know, um, quite frankly, you know, it, I say this, and I don't know how it sounds, but like it, it usually comes back to money. Usually, you know, we, we, we want to talk about um, all these other things and hover around it. But if a player costs 100 million euros, that's very risky. If a player is free, that is not risky. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, as far as viability, right? And whether it's, uh, I mean, I forget the exact sum that uh, Beppe Marotta plucked Pogba from. I think it wasn't even a million euro. I, I don't think it was even 500 uh, you know, euros, right? Or sorry, 500,000 euros. Um, and then to be able to to then uh, flip him again back, 
back to his home club, you know, his training club for Lord knows how many multiples of that. How, how do you sit with risk? And a guy, again, I mean, if it burns and flames out spectacularly, I'll be the first one to say I was wrong. However, uh, Jesper Fredberg at uh, Anderlecht, I just, he's done it now at two places where he's sourcing talent and especially attacking talent. He's sourcing talent um, below the radar and he's beating out bigger destination clubs. So um, he's one who, in my opinion, um, just just off of the, the the talent that he's been able to put into the first team squad at RSC Anderlecht, and then uh, the Belgian league uh, updating their um, let's call it uh, domestic league format. I expect Anderlecht to be better, categorically better than what they were uh, the past two seasons. He's been past two full seasons. He's been there. Okay. Uh, going back to Italy, I'm a have been a big fan of Sassuolo for so long, simply because honestly, it's it's almost like they say, okay. So Gino, uh, Giovanni Carnavali is the he's not the sporting director, technical uh, technical director. He is the president CEO, but um, he's essentially the Paul Barber, the bright the Brighton or sorry the the Sassuolo version of Paul Bright or Paul Barber at Brighton, if I could say it. And he is the, the, the gatekeeper of this is why we recruit this way. Who fits into this model? And, you know, jokingly, I, I think that he sits down with uh, Alessio Dionisi, the first team manager. He sits down with um, his, uh, those in his technical setup and they say, okay, guys, before we meet here in 20 minutes, I want all of you to get spreadsheets. Send me Excel spreadsheets of all the youth academy uh, graduates that, Inter, AC Milan, Juventus, and Roma and Lazio have, uh, you know, kicked out of their, their their academy or not renew their contract. Just send me those, and then we'll meet up, you know, and we'll get we'll get an espresso and we'll, we'll talk. Because what they do every single year, and it, somehow it flies on the radar every summer, they'll sign um, seemingly throw in, throw away nineteen twenty year olds, um, uh, you know, academy graduates. And then we look up again and they're selling that same academy graduate to the parent club for $40 million. It doesn't make any, he's been doing it for 15 years. Um, But that's what they're able to do. And that sourcing of talent is based on, okay, this player, let's just use uh, Gianluca Scamaca as an example. This player had one of the best agents that we've ever seen in in Mino Riola. Took him to PSV, took him to Roma, took him to, you know, uh, took him to all these places. But what does he need? He needs game time. We can give him game time. You know, we can give him all the game time he can handle. They do that and they sell him for 40 million euros, right? So at the end of the day, it's not, I don't think in this white scout instat era, it's not about being able to know who the talents are, right? That's 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 old news. Everybody knows who, who the talents are. Everybody has a pie chart, a, a radio, you know, we, we all have that. I mean, most of us do, right? Um, the key is conviction and speed. That that is where you you either are are shown as being a a poser or you are the real deal. Um, Florentino Perez and Real Madrid take Arda Guler before other clubs. How is that possible? They don't they don't need Arda Guler, right? I mean, that's fair to say, in my opinion, very fair. They don't need his talent. But why did they get him? Because they're betting on the fact that they know he's that good. And, I mean, yeah, we don't want Barcelona or, or anybody else to get him. But if we can put him, one of my favorite Arsene Wenger quotes is that, and again, I'm paraphrasing, the best way to make one young talent better is to put him next to another young talent. Real Madrid has like 17 of them So in the first team. So, uh, I mean, it's you know win, win, win. Um, going really quickly, uh, I mean, in Italy, I, I like Pantaleo Corvino. I've wrote about him in the past, whether it's as simple as staying, you know, uh, staying in the first tier or being able to find talents and, and, and better, uh, bet on them. Like, uh, Dusan Vlahovic, who's at, who was at, he brought him to Fiorentina when he was there. And then obviously, uh, Vlahovic is at Juventus now, um, being able to find 
attacking talent and being able to sell them on at multiples of what you invested in, that that to me is the football manager holy grail, right? Because we all want to do it. We all want to pluck some underused uh, Brazilian wonderkin, right? And be able to sell them on for a vast amount of profit. The last name I'll give... Cool. Yeah. The, well, the last name I'll give is the one who just seems to be controversial, but I just I don't see it. Um, I stand by my guys <laughs> for what is worth. And it's Sven Mislintat. Uh, I mean, he's been at Borussia Dortmund. He's been at Arsenal. He's been at Stuttgart. And now he's at Ajax. Um, if you look at if you look, some will call it bloodletting, you know, at Ajax, you know, with, with the, the profiles leaving. If you look at everywhere he's gone. He's brought in talent. Now, has that talent meshed with the first team manager and the uh, the expectation of the club in that season? No, no, it has not. Um, but then, but then, how do we judge that? Is that like what's going on, right? And at Arsenal and at Borussia Dortmund, you know, there's there's storylines there that make me personally believe that the talent is not the issue. The profiles, you know, the recruitment isn't the issue. It's the bigger picture. What are, what are we doing as a club? What do we expect this man who f- continues to find these uncut diamonds? What do we expect him to do other than that? So, tangent is over. No, I think Sven, Sven Mislintat's that's really interesting one, actually. Um, his experience and looking at the places he's been and the talent he's brought in, um, we may have to... Ex- extend this uh, and, and speak about it and also on on Sassuolo you know we have an episode um that we recorded previously where we we talk a lot about their method actually and and how have they been so successful where I guess plucking out these talents that maybe others have disregarded and seen how well they've done so take a listen to that as well and, and I'll put a link in the show notes for those that may be interested David really fascinating conversation I think and that Talent plays such a big part, or talent projection, talent recruitment. I also think there's a big thing around the self-fulfilling prophecy of talent as well, where people seem to jump on the bandwagon of talent. Um, and the sporting directors that maybe don't get enough credit are the ones that don't necessarily jump on that bandwagon and um, you know go elsewhere, I guess, and still succeed. So we'll talk about that in future episodes for sure. As always, David, thank you so much for your time. I will put your Twitter handle in the show notes. David puts out some really great tweets on on sporting directors and profiles them, as well as some thoughts on different areas of football. So please keep a lookout for that. Um, and also, you know, take a look at our Get Football media outlets. You know, where we cover European football and world football with news, videos, opinions from some of the most plugged in analysts across the football landscape. I'll put a link in the show notes for that also. And lastly, and as always, I just want to say from both myself and David, we hope you guys have a great day.